What does it mean to be an Indonesian woman living in a Norwegian town? In this episode, Kirana shares with us her experiences of being othered, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Her story is also about gaining child custody as a young single mother in a system that is aimed against her as a foreigner. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Kirana. Kirana was born and raised in Jakarta, the capital city of Indonesia. I come from Indonesia and I was born and grew up in the capital city, Jakarta. Jakarta is very diverse, like mixed. I, I guess, you know, there are so many immigrants from other islands because we are, I have a Chinese heritage and a fourth generation. So it's my great, great grandfather <laughs> who immigrates there was in the 1920s, perhaps. And then so, um, I don't know, we're, we're very much Jakarta. Because <laughs> even like from the language, you know, because Jakarta, I think we're quite happy and proud people who live in Jakarta. Because it's like, not only, you know, when we speak Indonesian, it's quite different. It's like, we have our own um, slang. <laughs> and that very Jakartan, you know, and it's not formal at all. <laughs> And and the discrimination, yeah, it's it, um there there has been some issues, but that was before the revolution. With um, we have the the second president before that has well, you you might call it that has been the longest dictatorship in Indonesia. But then actually, um, sometimes the media is just you know media says one thing, but the reality is another thing because I I yeah. What I remember from my childhood, it was mostly a, a good memory. It's just that one time, uh, that one period, the kind of reformation that um, was turbulent. But then, of course, you have a new president, you have a new um, a government, like reform and everything, and then and then it went okay again. And Indonesia in general, it's uh, our um, motto is like unity and diversity. And you've got like so many like. 17,000 islands and so many ethnicities and you know when you go outside another island day if we don't speak Indonesian basically we don't understand each other so I think it's impressive how we can call like an Indonesian nation itself you know as, as a unity I don't know how to explain this better but yeah I mean discrimination is always there but then we also have a kind of a solution after that Okay, I think in general, basically, Indonesians, we are very forgiving. I would say that. And you help each other, you know. It's like the conflict solution. It's it's very, it's like keluargaan. I cannot translate this in English. <laughs> Keluarga, it means like family. So you see each other as a family. And then, you know, in family, when you have conflicts, and then you talk to each other, you have a dialogue, right? Resolve more in the dialogue first instead of using the legal solution as a you know as in the states perhaps are you people easy to see each other. At the age of thirty-two, Kilana moved to a town in Norway to marry her then partner, a Norwegian man. She later started pursuing her studies in nursing. She says she felt welcomed when she first moved there, but this all changed when the COVID pandemic hit in early twenty twenty. She recalls two incidents from nursing school where she was othered. 
when I moved here, I felt so welcome, you know, also with the father of my daughter. It's just after the pandemic, you know, in 2020, I remember in March, and that's when I started to feel like, hmm, something's going on here because people will made a remark, like said something that made me very uncomfortable and, you know, just questioning, is it real? Did I really hear that, you know? In the university, for example, the context was, it was a normal class lessons. Uh, one of the teachers giving lecture and uh, was discussing some teams. It was a group work. I think it was 30 of us and I was the only East Asian looking or Southeast Asian looking. And then I wanted to question, right? We, we could have a comment or questioning what she was saying. So I raised my hand and then she said the word Hiroshima to me. And then that's it. And then she continued speaking <laughs> as if like, you know, as if like cutting and it's just telling me, no, you, you don't, don't disturb me. Uh, like, so it's a bit weird that happened to me. And then another experience are also relating to this uh, study workplace. One of the senior nurse, like, so we were assigned senior nurses who will teach us, you know, like trained us two weeks. And I remember we were in a car, only two of us, and she said something about, oh, Indonesia is a poor country. And then mentioning about my Norwegian, like gebroken osh. Gebroken, it means like when my Norwegian is so bad <laughs> that I have accent. And, and then and then it's not only accent, that it's um it's just like very foreign and, you know, not a proper Norwegian. That was actually hurt because like, Again, you know, when I heard it the first time, it was like shock, you know. I couldn't believe that happened to me. Kirana says that the nurses tried to make her fail her studies, but she fought back. She shares one such time. I had to pass this exam, so, and like, it is so obvious that they worked so hard to make me not pass. And then I was given an, like, an, ass, an essay that I had to write, you know, about communication. And then so... I wrote in five minutes. I was quite angry at the time when I realized, you know, what's happening to me was not okay. And then so I wrote an article about how, you know, Norway is a part of, you know, like globalization. Then one has to be open to, because like, you know, if you expect uh, foreigners, immigrants to speak your language and to integrate, I think the acceptance should be mutual, like to make us feel welcome. And then so, yeah, I wrote a, a very quick five minutes essay about that. In a way, I, I kind of like did it criticizing them, but in a very indirect way. And it's very nuanced, and, but I'm quite happy. And then after that, when she received it, she let me pass. <laughs> and then they tried to like, again, make me, um, you know, gave me a warning or you cannot continue to a higher level, the next level. But then I um, wrote a, like a varshal, we call it like a warning and telling like a higher authority, like what happened, you know, what they did to me, what they said to me. And then suddenly I'm still registered as a student. So they, they still let me like study there. So it's a bit weird, you know, like how um, they do things. Kilana shares some experiences she made outside of nursing school and reflects upon the question of when she fights back. There was uh, one time, but it's just one occasion, when I was part-time, right, working in the restaurant and then one of the customer, uh, this was in a cold winter, and um, he would, because, you know, he was waiting for his takeaway and then I was really actually 
very friendly and I was just having a conversation, you know, try to welcome him. And then he would ask me, oh, you're from Indonesia, like, do you eat dogs? <laughs> and then, so it's just, just stereotypes, you know. And, um, you know, when this happened to me after or since the pandemic, then I tried to read more about this, right? I Google a lot. I read lots of articles and there's this one explanation and I like it a lot because now it makes sense. And it says discrimination is not always obvious. Sometimes it's sub subtle and insidious. And when there is no power dynamic involved, it is prejudice. And when it is discriminatory, it is bigotry. And when it is systemic, then it is racism. And then so I understand perhaps when people, you know, strangers see me on the streets and then maybe they have like fear or I don't know, like stereotypes. Oh, you look like East Asian or Southeast Asian. Then they started to, but I just, I just think it's a bit, you know, it does, you don't have to make such commands because what's the purpose, you know? You don't have something nice to say. And what's, what's the purpose anyway by um, asking me that? And I don't eat dogs. I grew up with puppies. I love puppies. I still remember, like, it was actually puppies of my uncle, and he, he was called Heli. <laughs> and then also there is one incident in this small town. I was waiting for a bus in the public transportation, like a bus station. There was this teenage boy kind of, like, spit. But the, it was just like I was walking toward that bus stop. And then he was already there waiting inside and he, and then he spit. So I don't know if he, you know, if he was like directed at me, but it was just like, you know, just a bit weird because I never see someone, I've never seen someone doing that in Norway or before, like after so many years living here. With the strangers, my motto is like, when people insult you, if we give high value to them, then we will feel hurt. But then like, now that I think about it, I don't know them. They don't know me. They were just like probably also could have perhaps having a bad day and maybe they're racist or, but then like, you know, whatever. Like I don't give them high value enough for their insults to hurt me. Kirana shares her experiences on the intersection of nationality and religion in Norway and the implications this can have. Norway also has an issue with Islamophobia. Because when they look at me, because I look Southeast Asian, right? Or like East Asian, perhaps. I don't know. And then once I, they will either think I'm from, you know, either here at least in Norway, in a region context, Vietnam or Korea or Chinese, China. And when I say Indonesia, they will think immediately, oh, you're Muslim, you know? And, and but Norway really has a problem with uh, Islamophobia. And this has been tough also. And I think it's, it's sad because it's kind of a mix of racism-based issues and religions as well. And um, in Indonesia, we have a saying or greetings. I will speak it in Indonesian first, then I will translate. So we have a saying that uh, Islam itu indah, Hindu itu cinta, Kristen itu kasih, Buddha itu damai, Konghutsu itu harmonis. So in English, it would be like Islam is beautiful, Hinduism is love, Christianity is giving, Buddhism is peaceful, and Confucius is harmonious. So it's like the beauty of love that is like giving and peaceful and harmonious between religious communities and it shouldn't really be a problem. <laughs> but now I, I find it that it can be mixed as well, you know, this identity. And so definitely they they like kind of, I, I can feel 
like some people when if I, when I say I'm from Indonesia, they're quite, quite skeptical. And then so, but again, you know, this uh, Norway also have a part where you can say like a Bible Belt, and there is a, a a group I think that is really expressing that they don't like um, Muslims or Islam. And uh, yeah, but it's it's quite extreme. They would like to so a sort of pr- pr- protest. And in the recent news now, I read that some parents are, are do not want to send the, their children to a mosque anymore. For example, yeah, I think in such a country, you know, that, that has liberal values, it's just um, it's sad, you know, that uh, such things still exist. Kirana is a single mother to a three-year-old daughter. After divorcing, her ex-husband, who is Norwegian, filed for child custody. Kirana has been going through the child custody process in Norway alone with a system stacked against her. She shares a situation she found herself in, namely that of a public health institution wrongly diagnosing her daughter so her ex-husband can keep her, and Kirana has less time with her. My daughter, she's only three years old. Just three weeks before the trial in the district, the local district court, she was uh, given an opinion by a doctor in public healthcare institution, like hospital, just three weeks before the trial that says she has this rare diagnosed disease. And then it was submitted to the court, the documents, by the father and his lawyer. But at the same time, that report or that opinion is contradicting a lab medical reports by one of the most prestigious university hospital here that stated that she's healthy, she, you know, all the genetic results is normal, but it was not submitted. Even though I uh, discussed this with uh, my previous attorney and that's why I changed my attorney. And then so I found it, it's uh, incompetent and unethical for, um, a healthcare professional, like a doctor, to do such things. And then so I'm a rebel at heart, so I want to find solutions. And so I just contacted private doctors, like pediatricians in the capital, and uh, I talked to them and they offer help. Yeah, One of them says, you know, sometimes doctors don't agree with each other. And he was actually shocked that I had to deal with this alone, being sort of attacked, you know, by all these um, officials or contact people from the public institutions that were supposed to be neutral and objective, but instead they're not. And then so I even wrote a letter to Ministry of Healthcare and Services just to get a confirmation that my daughter has a right for the second opinions or third opinions or fourth and fifth if I have to. And also with the county governor who's uh because I complain about them, right, the way I've been treated. For example, the contact person that was called being a witness would say such things like, you know, African mothers, they hold babies on their back. That's why they don't have eye contacts. And then how do you do it in Asia? And then I was like, again, you know, to listen or to hear such remarks, the first reaction was shock. And I, when you, you know, when you're such in a state of shock, then you couldn't say anything back. And uh, I felt, I just felt weird. And so I just answer, no, we hold them on the sides. (laughs) And I think it's fine. I have, you know, I sing to her in my language. And since she was born, you know, she was like breastfeeding for, or comfort feeding for 18 months. And then, so we have good eye contact, no problem. And then the doctor also would, uh, when we talk on the phone, the only phone call we had um, would say, 
you know, coughing and then laughing and then mentioning about tea drinking culture, you know, and, and mo mostly Norwegians, they drink coffee, like very, very seldom, like they think, but of course, like, it's just, I know this is just like a teasing of my culture, because like he said, oh, I've been to Jakarta, Indonesia, and then, and then such things. And then I just, uh, I just remember one of my good friend advice, like, you know, even if you are being treated poorly, unfairly, discriminated. You just have to hold yourself together and do it all with respect and dignity. And then so, but then I guess there's a line, you know, of being just, yeah, being silent and then to complain back. And so I complain about what they said and what their treatment to the county governor and then the public hospital apologize four times in the letter, but still they, they would wrote false statements. And when I asked uh, to be provided for an interpreter and she would say, uh, when it's the same contact person, you know, the interpreter is there to translate. It's not for there to, as an emotional support. And then again, I felt weird, you know, and this is not okay. Cause like, I'm a nursing student myself. We don't do like that. We don't speak like that to patient or to the parents of um, patients. So. And I, I'm the kind of person that do not talk back immediately <laughs> because like, you know, when you, again, I have to explain when I hear this, the thing, I, I didn't expect people would say such things, right? Because like, I know myself as a, a nursing student and I have practice in, for example, in elderly's home before, we don't do that. We just don't, I think Asians and uh, and uh, I mean, I have also classmates from Africans. We are one of the most gentle and caring people out there. I'm telling you, like, <laughs> you would want to hire us. Kirana reflects on one lesson she learned so far in this child custody process. The importance of meeting the right individuals, even or especially when the issue is structural. The child custody process, I had to navigate the system alone here without help. And my family couldn't visit, right, because the border was closed. And then so it was tough for the emotional support. Of course, I have overseas, like I talked to my friends, but mostly it's online. And they were very kind to me. They gave me advice what to do and also my consulate to find the best lawyers and everything. But I found that that is why I want to uh, emphasize that it is not about nationality. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's about individual. Like, because I found a, a minority lawyer who I trusted so much, depended on her, but instead I felt misleaded. Like, instead of just uh, helping me to get my daughter's back. She has another agenda or like strategy that is not giving me a best solution. Then. And then the result is I have less time with my daughter and then my attorney after her. But, but basically, if one ended up in child custody, my advice is do not go there in the first place. Like try to be like what I'm very disappointed is, you know, we can solve this in a civil way. Like, um, you know, we... We will be a parents like forever, right? Even though we're not couples anymore and, and one doesn't have to do this. But anyway, I, I found like uh, another minority lawyer now and she's very different professionals and kind spoken. So lawyers are also <laughs> made up of different personalities and I learned that the hard way. But I'm grateful now. I think I have um, the right people to help me. I reached out to actually many mainstream media newspapers and uh, didn't get any response. And some famous journalists uh, I contacted, they either said 
um, they had no capacity or or just wishing me the best. But then I found these two editors that are working toward the same issues. One based in Oslo, in the capital, and then so he would want to help me. He would want to, and he understands immediately. He says, you know, and and that I'm not alone. And and then another one. She's a foreigner, and then so she's working mostly uh, for English audience, like English-speaking audience, and and she's investigating this matter also, the discrimination toward foreign mothers or immigrants, like dealing with the Norwegian system. And um, I don't know to feel oh, should I feel sad or actually should I feel relief that I'm not alone because like that means it's quite bad actually to find that I'm not the only one, right? that it happened in Norway, that values transparency and everything. But thank God that I never have problem with police though, <laughs> or other yeah, institutions regarding my daughters. And the police is actually quite very kind. I mean, I know like in, in the States, for example, then it would be really tough because the police are, you know, the image that we read in the media is not. But actually here in Norway, at least when I call them and, and when I ask um, for help, then they're quite welcoming. And and also in Indonesia, you know, even my auntie told me, you know, it's, yes, the institutions, but they consist, they're made up of people, right? Sometimes even the same institution, you meet different kind of workers, then you get different treatments. <laughs> and then some would help you, like, really helpful, and some would just like, ah, don't care. So, yeah. And the question is how we how we meet those kind of people that are more friendly and helpful that are actually care, you know, listening to um, our issue, like really genuine want to help, right? Kirana says that despite all her negative experiences she's going through in the child custody process, these experiences became a motivation for her to help and support others. I want to find uh, the best possible solutions yeah for my daughter for me and um what the father did is just uh yeah it's ridiculous i would say the word but at the same time if this didn't happen to me i would also still contribute in in such a way now that i understood these things happening and uh, i talked to other other minorities they experienced the same i mean until we experience it ourselves, sometimes we cannot really, you know, one can have some sympathy, but not empathy. But one, once you experience it, oh no, then I think we should, we should help people that are experiencing this discrimination and, and racism. This is, um, there is no going back for me. I mean, I will, I will contribute uh, in anything that I can do, you know, to help or give people more awareness such things happen, can happen, or has been happening. Based on her background and experiences, Kirana reflects on what it means to be anti-racist, and more specifically, how she herself can be anti-racist. It's a tough question because I'm asking myself, how can I contribute that I, you know, sometimes I think I'm just like a, like a common young mother who's like having this legal issue now like what can I do right but then at the moment I look at my friends and she's my um, previous manager actually she's very kind to me she keeps giving me job offers <laughs> she knows what's happening to me and she just like yeah try to help me in her own ways you know and actually personally she's not well uh, physically but then she still wants to do that to help others close to her 
and I, I would like to be like her, I guess. Like to just care for for the people around you next to you that you meet and start from there, like one on one. And just yeah, start to I don't know. Like how can I help? <laughs> sometimes start asking this question, you know. Because like sometimes people when they're used to become helpers, they are not vulnerable enough to ask for help themselves. And we will never know until until they tell they tell you, right? And I think I would do my best to be more uh, sensitive uh, for people that need helps that can't really see it unless you talk to them and then you you start asking, you know, about their lives. And because here, what I notice is like at least Norwegian culture, the context, like you don't really want to disturb people, you know, others. Like you have to be independent. You have to solve your own things. So it's not easy, especially for minorities that uh, are experiencing discrimination, right? It's like, where do you ask for help then? And then if everybody thinks like, oh, yeah, but we have plenty of organizations that you can go to and you can go ask for help. So people think, I oh, she should be fine or he should be fine. They will be taken care of. But then it the, doesn't mean like that. Sometimes, um, yeah, we need to be more willing to do more of uh, just what expected to not only friendly but also just like really like how can I help you know these good questions because then you remind me of another person like that's like the first question he would when we speak you know after a long time and then he would ask like how can I help and this is not like kind of like sales or <laughs> whatever like you you go to the shop and then they ask you no but this this kind of like like a friendship talk right and even to people you just met so that's like, I guess, the anti-racist, like, how can I help others to, if they're having problem, they're feeling discriminated, how can I help? You can find more information on racism aimed at Asians in Norway, as well as other articles, books and videos. Kirana recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next month on December 7th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. This podcast is powered by the Competence Center for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Sangalan. A big thank you to Kirana for reaching out to me and trusting me to share her raw and fresh stories and for sharing with us thought-provoking reflections on this issue.